Good morning. Um, I was just thinking, I stood over there just thinking just now, it's very quiet. I don't know if that's just because in, in a live church that I lead, people are quite noisy. So, um, but I'd appreciate any kind of noise you can give this morning. We have quite a lot of crying babies as well. So if you want to cry, feel free to make me at home. It's a, it's a real privilege to be here. I um, grew up in this church back in the late 1900s and um, was a, became a Christian through it and so thankful to the ministry of Mike and Sally Breen. And then in the uh, first part, early part of the century, I was here as well. And uh, I was the youth leader for a while and with Mick and Tricia and then a curate here as well. And it's great to be here. In 2016, I planted a church with my um, wife, Louisa, our two boys, Johannes and Wilbur, and a group of people who together we went to a place called Gateshead. Um, if you don't know where Gateshead is, it's, a, it's about uh, an hour south of Scotland. So we like to call ourselves South Scotland, but um, particularly with the current events really in the UK. But um, so we've been doing that for six and a half years, and uh, our church is called a live church. We used to be called St. George's, but we wanted to be a prophetic voice uh, to our town and to our region that God was doing a new thing and calling us into a place of life again. Uh, in our generation, the question is very simple Will we pass on this message of life to those who come after us? You know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when people look back on our generation, what will they say that we did with this message that we've been given? Will we pass it on to the next generation? And so for us, we renamed ourselves a live church, not without controversy, and, uh, and have held that ground to say that what we feel called to do is to tell a whole load of people that Jesus is alive, that in him you'll find the life that you long for, a life not just for now that will take you into eternity. So that's what we've been doing these last six and a half years. And God in his grace has built a church in our community. Uh, we're not very strategically located. I think it's one of those places where no one but the Lord thinks it's a good idea to plant a church. But the Bible says that he takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And it seems to me that God always does things in unlikely places. Jesus is born into an unlikely place. It's actually just unlikely that God would come as a human to save us, but that's exactly what God does. It's what he's always been doing, and it's what he's doing today. So we lead a life church, and um, we're grateful to God. We're a diverse church. Um, one of the things we've been pursuing is to become ethnically, educationally, and socially more diverse. If we're to reach our nation, the Church of England must be representative of the Church of England, of the whole of England. And so we've been intentionally asking the question, how do you become educationally more diverse? How do you become socially more diverse? And how do we address the historic sin of racism that we have been participants in as churches? And how do we say in this church, in our time, we will build a church that doesn't grieve the heart of God, but delights the heart of God? And as you know, racism grieves the heart of God. So that's what we've been up to these last uh, six and a half years. And uh, I'd love to tell you it's been like glory, glory, hallelujah. Uh, but it really hasn't. And uh, it's a sometimes it's really challenging. I mean, culturally, we're living in a valley. Everyone you know right now is living in a cultural valley, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We're only three years into this decade. And so far, we have lived with the confusion and difficulty of Brexit, regardless of what you voted for. Uh, we have lived through a pandemic, and then we've lived through war in Europe. 
And so culturally, everyone you know right now is walking through a valley. So it's not always glory, glory, hallelujah, is it, to do these things. But God is good and faithful uh, to us in the midst of it. That was just my introduction. I'm told you finished church at 10 past 12, so we're gonna, it's going to be a challenge because in, in the live church we preach for like 50 minutes, so, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best. Hey, this summer, um, my uh, boy and I, Wilbur, went on a pilgrimage. We uh, sent our oldest boy off to camp, to scout camp. Johannes was away for the whole week. It's amazing. Thank you, Jesus, for the scouts. And um, Louisa was working, and so I had Wilbur's for the day, Wilbur... Um, my youngest boy, he's nine. And uh, we said, we loved chocolates. So we went on a pilgrimage to York, to the Chocolate Museum. Uh, we actually didn't, we didn't, this is our true story, we didn't bother with any navigation. I reckon I could work my way to York by just driving south. So that's what we did. We smelled our way to York. Um, we had a great time. We went to the train museum. We spent out seven minutes there. I know some people absolutely love the train museum, but, but I was just like, this is just a load of big, trains that I'm not allowed in. I'm not allowed to drive. I mean, you can look in the windows of the royal carriage, but I figured that when there was an actual royal carriage, I'd have only been allowed to look in the windows then too. So we spent about seven minutes there. We watched some very dubious street art, and then we went to uh, the Chocolate Museum. If you don't know if you've ever been to the Chocolate Museum, the Chocolate Story, but it tells the story of um, the Roundtree family, and if you're not familiar with the Roundtree family, then, well, the Roundtree family um, were pioneers in the 19th century. They discovered this product, chocolate, and they discovered that they could make it into something. And so they began to create very small bars of chocolate and sell them to the people around them. And actually, the British Isles were going, was going through something of a chocolate revolution at the time. Just a few decades earlier, the Cadbury brothers had um, started their, the Cad, John Cadbury had started his own um, business in 1824. And over those decades, chocolate and um, these things had really taken hold of the imagination of a whole load of people. And so the Roundtree brothers in York, they um, started this business. And they began to do quite remarkable things. Uh, they were Christians. And because of their Christian faith, their faith in Jesus. They decided that they would do business differently in their time. They were real pioneers. They were amazing. Uh, they looked at the Victorian world around them and the gap between the rich and the poor, and that some people didn't have enough food to eat, and that not everyone had secure living. And they decided to do business in a way that would help them. They started chocolate and cocoa shops so that people wouldn't go to bars, but they'd go and drink hot chocolate instead. And their workers were incredibly well looked after. They were some of the first people to offer pensional benefits, a living wage, free dental care, health care. If you worked in one of their factories and you, ate all, you managed to do all of your quota for the day, you actually got to eat the sweets, which is why they had to do the free dental care. Same for the Cadbury brothers. Um, they started a place called Bourneville, where people can have affordable, good housing. And they did it because they were Christians. They did it because they believed that Jesus makes a difference. And that following Jesus must have an outworking in our lives. It must lead to the transformation of society. And so they pioneered the way. 
with business and with commerce. And they did these remarkable, remarkable things. They uh, created, of course, the Kit Kat, which I brought with me today. And if someone puts a hand up, you can have it. You've got to put your hand up to catch it. Yes. I don't think I could have got back there. It would have been a, would have been a risk. Um, they created the Kit Kat. The Kit Kat was pioneering. Uh, they actually got advice about the Kit Kat from a guy called Mr. Mars, who is the guy who started Mars, of course. It, it was an amazing, amazing thing. Kit Kat is remarkably successful. Do you know in Japan today, there's over 200 types of Kit Kat, including salmon Kit Kat? I'm not here to judge. I left um, York that day inspired by what they'd done. Just this sense of that you could change the world. And of course, that's the thing about the 19th century. All of those recipients of the grace of God, the Spirit of God, who rediscovered the heart of God through the evangelical revivals of the 18th and 19th century, went on to be pioneers in social change. But I also left this sense of sadness too. Because the reality is today, and this is not a comment on those companies per se, but they're not known for these things. We don't know Round Cheese and Nestle for these things, or Cadbury's for these things. Some of us do, but they're not known for it. And I left with this sense that it's possible, isn't it, to be successful and not be significant. It's possible, isn't it, to, to keep going after something, but find yourself going after the wrong thing in the end and lose the heart of what it is that we're actually called to. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk with you today about what it is we're actually called to and the sense that we as followers of Jesus are being called in our work as people who share the good news of Jesus and work for the transformation of society that we don't lose the heart of this gospel message. What it is to believe that Jesus comes to bring you life, life now and life in the world to come. I'm going to read to you from a famous story that I'm sure you know from the Gospel of John. Um, I don't know if we have any, any PowerPoint or not, but that's unrelated. Oh, we do. Oh, my gosh, it's there, but not there. Wow. That's really cool. Um, we don't have that, as you can tell by my surprise. Um, John 11 says this in verse 11. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Just for context, Jesus is uh, continuing his ministry. And uh, Lazarus is sick and has in fact died in the time when he's um, ministering. And Jesus seems slightly unconcerned, which is, is kind of irking the people around him, as you would do. You know, if you're with Jesus, your friend is dying, and you're like, we should go now. And Jesus is busy with other things. You can see why uh, you might be slightly concerned. But anyway, Jesus says to him, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and we're going to, uh, there to wake him up to Bethany. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly. Hands up if you need the Lord to tell you things really plainly sometimes. I, I really understand this moment. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad he was, I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's just pause there for a moment. First of all, for a moment of appreciation for Thomas, 
who just says everything everyone's thinking all of the time. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, I just want to just pause for a moment. Notice what Jesus does. Uh, and I think this is so important for us as we try to pursue the things we're called to, as we seek to see change. He involves the disciples in all of this. He's, he's taking them on the journey with him. He's like, we're going to go and we're going to have a... And he's open to their questions, but they're going together. It's not just something Jesus is doing. It's something he's doing with them. Let's just have the next verse, if that's all right. Just because I, I needed to find out where it was. <laughs> when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. So um, Jesus travels there. He interacts with Mary and Martha. They have a conversation and Mary says, if you've been here, if only you'd been here. You could have done something. Sorry, Martha says it. So when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble and said, Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by that, this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Shout out to Martha, practical as ever. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you see me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There's so many things, of course, you could say about this passage. I mean, it's one of John's seven I am sayings. Uh, you know, Jesus, John wants you to know Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, the good shepherd, the gate for the sheep, the true vine, and the resurrection and the life. There's so many things you could say about who it is we're being shown, Jesus. Of course, it's a sign to us. It's a sign of the whole gospel to us. But what I want to think about here is what it is Jesus doing with those disciples, how he's drawing them in to get involved in the thing he's come to do in the world, which is ultimately to aim the reign of sin and death and to bring about life to all those who trust in him. Lazarus is dead. He's a friend of Jesus. And this is probably the other center of ministry, Capernaum, where Jesus is with the disciples often, and then Bethany, where Jesus is with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And he comes, and Lazarus is a good friend of him, a dear friend of his. And no one can understand, like, Jesus, why, why are you not getting involved faster and more urgently? But he comes, and Mary and Martha come, and they begin to enter this conversation with him. And they begin to kind of try to draw him in. And Jesus talks about what it is that he's going to do. And he tries to give them that word of faith. But really, what he's faced with when he gets there is a scene of desolation, of sadness, of death. A scene where it feels overwhelmingly like this is going to be a loss. 
And then Jesus gets to work. And the first thing Jesus does is he engages with the pain. He engages with the chaos. And he engages with the mess. Jesus gets there and he says he weeps. When he uh, steps into it, he cries out. And the Greek word indicates that what Jesus does is it's like a guttural cry from deep within who he is about the pain and the mess and the chaos of this world. There's something almost uncontrollable about Jesus when Jesus steps into this place and sees before him the effects of a broken world bound to sin and death. And so Jesus cries out, it says in the gospel. He's weeping real tears. It's like a roar comes from within him. The mess of the world, the brokenness of the world, the chaos of the world, now manifest in his friend Lazarus dying. For you and I, we need to hold on to this simple reality that the chaos and the mess and the challenge of our lives matters to the heart of God. How do we know that? Because Jesus is the full revelation of the heart of God for us. And Jesus sees the chaos in our lives and the lives of those around us and he's not stepping back from it. He's not kind of at a distance saying, it looks really difficult, it looks really challenging. Now, the miracle of our faith, the thing that we hold to is that God steps into the very world that is difficult and painful and chaotic and brings into it his son in order to speak life into it. What do you see in this moment? You see what John will later describe to you in Revelation 5 in his great vision when he's stranded on the island of Patmos as the Lion of Judah. This is the roar of the Lion of Judah, of Jesus stepping into that place and roaring at the consequence of sin in the world. You're not alone in your brokenness. If you feel like Lazarus today, Jesus steps into the place of death. Revelation 5 also says he's the lamb who was slain in order that you might know new life. If we're to be people who change the world, we're going to have to deeply within our hearts Soak in this truth that Jesus steps into the pain of your life, to the challenges that you face, and as the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, he roars at the chaos and he brings change. It starts with us knowing this gospel in our own hearts, in our own lives. That's where it begins. Of course, for those of us who know it, for those of us who know Jesus, who know he's exactly that, we are called to imitate Jesus in the world, to follow in his footsteps. That means that if we're to be a church that genuinely sees the transformation of the nation, 
of society. We won't just simply stand back and say, hey, I'm praying for you. It looks really tough over there. We won't simply give our cash and say, hey, maybe this will help you. Well, that's a really good thing to do. We had Giving Sunday last week. If you want to give cash, I can help you with that anytime. But we won't simply do that. We will have to step into that place and face the chaos and the mess ourselves in the life of the world around us. And let me be honest with you about that. It will be difficult and challenging because places of death, you know what they look like? Death. You know what they smell like? Death. You know what you experience all the time? Death. Following Jesus will lead you to places that are really challenging. You'll have to face things that are really, really challenging. That has been our experience in planting a church in a place where there wasn't a church. Well, there was, but not as ours. Of trying to plant into a church that had become six people over 50 years. But not only that, as we've tried to engage a community where 1.25% of people go to church, a community that has got huge gaps between the rich and the poor, where mental health crises is uh, often the case. In our community, 20, we are 20% higher rates of admission for young people with self-harm than the rest of the country. We have higher rates of suicide than the rest of the country. And it's not kind of like who can compete about who has the ugliest baby. It's just to give you an idea. If you want to be, though, a missionary who changes the world, you're going to have to learn to step into those places and not stand at a distance and say, I'll pray for you and can I give you, but actually can I get to know you and make you my friend? I wonder today, where is it that Jesus wants to step into the brokenness of your own life? It starts there. But also, where is he calling you out to follow him, to imitate him, to bring change. Maybe it's an issue of educational inequality. Maybe it's an issue of social inequality that in the seventh richest economy in the world, we still have this much poverty. Maybe it's an issue of ethnic inequality that we're called to face the reality of our historic sin of racism and say we as a church will put it right in our generation. May the Lord's call you to engage with the pain of that in order to bring change. That's what Jesus does. And it's what we're called to too. Secondly, I will, I will speed up at this point. Hey, the other day I did a two-point sermon. The Holy Spirit just didn't move. That's why we've got to stay on the three-point plan for a, <laughs> forevermore. Um, the second thing I want to say is this. Life comes in Jesus' name. Life comes in Jesus' name. Our social transformation must be met with this message that Jesus will give you the life that you long for, the transformation that you need, the healing that you're desperate for, that it comes in the name of Jesus. That's what's happening here. Jesus is stepping in, of course, so it is the word made flesh who steps into that place. But what every disciple who wants to see change and life come after that will do is speak out in the name of Jesus and say, only in the name of Jesus can life come. We can bring all of the programs in the world, and we should do lots. We should work tirelessly for this transformation. But we must remember that the true hope and true life that the people around us are longing for comes only in the name of Jesus. 
And so what we're called to do over and over again is speak out his name and speak out his life and share our story of of how he transformed us. And because he transformed even someone like me, he can transform those around you. Everyone. Life comes in Jesus' name. This is what we're called to do, to share this life with those around us. Everyone you know is either someone who knows this reality or is waiting for you to tell them that life comes in his name. So if we're to follow Jesus and imitate Jesus, this is what we'll learn to do. We'll learn to share this good news. Ephesians 2 says this, You are dead in your sin, but you've been made alive in Christ because of God's great love for you and his, because he's rich in mercy. And let's be absolutely clear. The gathering of the church is not the gathering of some people who've got together on a Sunday to see how they can be slightly better. That's something else. The gathering of the church is the gathering of people who know that on their own they're dead in their sin, but in Christ they're being made alive shaped in his image and transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. Life comes in Jesus' name. That means for us, we must keep inviting the Holy Spirit to transform us. We need an inner healing move of God in our nation. One of the things I've observed in my own church is it's fine for us to keep on pressing on to the frontier and keep on pioneering and keep on inviting people in. But unless we see the move of the Holy Spirit that brings life in Jesus' name, we will not see the transformation we long for. So what do we do? We step in like Jesus did into the places of death and difficulty. We speak out life in Jesus' name, but we must invite the Holy Spirit to come and bring within us that inner healing we all long for. To say, Lord, I I need you to transform me. I need you, Lord, to put the pieces back together and to hold them in place for me. I need over and over again, Lord, for the Spirit of God to come. You cannot get momentum without stoking the engine. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Life comes in Jesus' name, and the Holy Spirit brings to you the reality of what Jesus has done so you might remember that you're a loved child of God. That's our message for the world and it's our message for us. And thirdly and finally, we get to join in. The disciples get to join in. This is what I love about Jesus in this story. He's the one doing all of the miracles. He's the one doing all of the work. That's really good news. It's really, really good news for us as a church. It means that it's, not, it's really not reliant on how good our Instagram is or how good our graphics are or how good our music is. It's really reliant on him and we should hold on to it. But the disciples get to join in with what he's doing. That's what I asked you to remember at the beginning, if you remember. That Jesus says, I'm going to take you on a journey now. We're going to see what I can do. And then after Jesus calls out life in Lazarus, after he's like, Lazarus, come out. He says to the disciples, take off the grave clothes. Take off the signs of death in this man's life. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you get the amazing privilege of joining in with the things Jesus is doing. The amazing privilege of drawing alongside those who are broken, who are hurting, who are trapped, who are held down, Drawing alongside them and saying, can I take off 
the grave clothes that you carry. Jesus does the miracle. Jesus is the saviour. It's his spirit that brings the healing. But could I walk with you? Could I serve you? Can I get to know you? Could I journey together with you? That's what, of course, we've tried to do. We've tried to be people who join in with what Jesus is already doing. Uh, I, I am, am not a great church planter or church leader. And uh, none of us who went to Gateshead in six and a half years ago were particularly competent. We had one thing in common, availability. We were just all available at one time, and we felt called by God. And um, I, I'm really thankful for that, because if I was relying on my competency, I would be in real, a real mess now. But what I'm trying to do is learn to rely on my availability. I'm just available, Lord. If you want to use me, use me. If I can join in with what you're doing, I'll join in with what you're doing. And Lord, I'll keep pressing on to the thing you've called me to. We talk lazy in our kind of culture about capacity and competency. But I think we need a conversation about availability and calling. Are you available and what are you called to? Disciples join in with what Jesus is doing in the world. They take off the grave clothes. He's the one who brings the miracle, but you get to join in. It goes like this, you see. You're either someone who is being brought to life or you're someone who's joining in with the call to life. And sometimes it's both of those things at the same time. And my question for you today, as you think about Social Transformation Sunday, which in the Church of Jesus, of course, is every Sunday. But my question is, what are you, where are you waiting for God to bring by his spirit and because of Jesus the life the Father longs for you to have in your life? Where are you being called to speak out life to those around you? And maybe you're sat there thinking, well, I can't because right now, I'm in like this like sticky patch. But sometimes we're both of those things at the same time. We're people who are like, I'm, I've got some stuff I'm working on, and I'm also joining in with Jesus. How do we hold on to it? We're, this is what we're called to do, you see. Jesus comes to us. He says, I'm going to involve you in what I'm doing. He steps into a place of mess, difficulty, chaos, and pain. The miracle of the incarnation. We follow him because that's what we are. We're his followers. When we get there, we see that it's him who brings the miracle. So we speak out in Jesus' name life. And then when we begin to see him work, we see that we too have a role to play. We can take off the grave clothes of those who are being brought to life and join in. Why don't we stand? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you. Well, we need to finish because half past. So, just stand. Um, but let's. I don't know. I'll, I'll pray and then I'll hand over to Alan. I'll make a quick exit. <laughs> listen, everyone. I listen. I said this to my church. So I'll say it to you. Everyone I listen to preaches for 50 minutes. So it's really hard. <laughs> but Holy Spirit, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for your presence in this church, Lord. All that you've done through here, and all that you've done through these people. And so, Lord, we say, would you do it again? And would you, Lord, go further and do more? And we thank you, Lord, for it. And we say, Holy Spirit, come. 
Lord, for those of us today who need to hear again that message of life in our own lives, Lord, would you loudly now declare it over us? And Lord, where we're being called out, would you, Lord, show us? And Lord, would you encourage us, give us the courage we need to go? And those of us, Lord, who feel like we're both being called to life and called to go, Lord, would you remind us that your spirit is strong in our weakness? And Lord, through us, you want to show your grace to the world that even people like us can be used by you. So send, Lord, your Holy Spirit. Amen.